Got my mic uh, turned on just soon enough for you to hear my cough. Good morning. Glad you are here with us. If you are visiting, we are thrilled to have you. It's been a good week. We are continuing our series in John. We are in chapter 19. And uh, uh, some of the content seems pretty heavy. And I'm not running real quickly right by it because a lot of times when it comes to the cross, we, run, we want to run right by it into resurrection joy. And uh, we tend to do that with our lives in general, where uh, when we're in dark places, when we're in uncomfortable places, we try in our own power to end that night as quickly as possible. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but sometimes the nights that we are in are beyond our capability and powers to fix. And sometimes when we run right past the cross so quickly, in the uncomfortable places, in the pain, sometimes we miss the, the hidden graces and the lessons that are there for us. And so uh, I think we have a few of those lessons here this week. Uh, last week we finished with Jesus being flogged and mocked by the soldiers. He is brought before the Jewish leaders, bruised and bloody, wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate, who spoke better than he knew, says, here is the man. These words are full of theological, existential, and spiritual significance, and these words are also full of irony. Here is the man. But it, someone pointed out to me last week that, you know, these words, here is the man, is also words of prophecy that come from the book of Zechariah. John records words of Pilate that had been on the lips and pen of the prophet Zechariah generations earlier. Here is the man. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place to build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne and he will be a priest on his throne. Jesus from the cross branches out to build the temple of God, a temple not made by human hands. Paul's words from 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Here's the man. So even as Jesus is being cut down, he is branching out from the cross to build the temple of God in the hearts of humanity. All the people involved in the drama of the crucifixion, they think they know what is happening. They think they know who has the power, who's important. But no one really knows what's happening in this drama of the cross except God himself. And now Pilate finds out a little bit more about this man he just has flogged. And what he finds out, it scares him. Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted. We have a law and according to the law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. 
So Pilate goes backstage again. He's front stage because the Jewish leaders wouldn't come into the palace courtyard. So he's backstage again with Jesus. And uh, this hint of new information uh, gives him the idea that maybe he has been playing to the wrong audience a little bit. And that idea is a little bit scary. And while it's clear that Pilate was a cynical and blunt man, who was more interested in putting the Jewish authorities in their place than standing up for true justice. When he hears that Jesus claims to be the Son of God, he's a bit spooked by it. No doubt remembering that he had just had Jesus flogged. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Hear Jesus' silence. It further upsets Pilate. So he lets Jesus know, look here, your life is in my hands. And when Jesus finally responds, he says this, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who has handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. So what does that mean? There's a couple things going on here. First of all, Jesus is reminding Pilate, what do you have that you did not receive? Essentially, Jesus is claiming that everything that has happened is under the sovereignty of God. God is in control. God is the power from above. Keep in mind that Jesus says this with his back back ripped open from being whipped. So despite the worst evil anyone can do, it is the purposes of the Lord that in the end will carry the day. Despite the worst evil that can happen, it is the purposes of God that will prevail in the end. So when Pilate says, I'm holding all the cards, Jesus, Jesus, in essence, reminds him, no, you're just a pawn. So what is this matter now of greater sin, guilty of greater sin? Uh, Pilate remains responsible for his kind of spineless, politically motivated judicial decision. But Pilate did not initiate this trial or cook up a plot to bring Jesus down. He is just kind of handed this situation. The ones who had conspired against Jesus, we've already heard their stories a little bit. Judas, in his decision to betray him. Then before Annas, uh, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Then Caiaphas, who set in motion this series of events with the intention of destroying Jesus. They're the ones who are guilty of greater sin. Pilate doesn't go looking for trouble with Jesus. He just mismanages the situation once it arrives to him. Well, hearing this, from then on it says, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Not only is this a, a, a perversion of justice that he can see through, he also is a little bit worried about, about who this is that he's allowing this to happen to. But the Jews kept shouting, 
If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. So the political brinkmanship continues as the Jewish leaders pressure Pilate to have Jesus crucified. You're no friend of Caesar's if you don't take this in hand. And also notice that Jesus is being handed over this little, this little annotation, the, pass, the preparation of the Passover week. Uh, this is going on while throughout the city people are slaughtering the Passover lambs. Do you ever make that connection? These lambs are being slain throughout the city as Jesus is being handed over to be crucified. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. At this point, Pilate knows that he can't escape the political trap that in an essence has been set up for him. But he still taunts his opponents openly. Shall I crucify your king? He meant it sarcastically, but he spoke again truer than he knew. And then the chief priests say that only Caesar is our king. Well, the Hebrew scriptures repeatedly insist that the only true king of Israel is God himself. But at this point, in the heat of this moment, they don't care if they disregard God and speak blasphemy so long as they get what they want from Pilate to kill Jesus. Thus, when the chief priests declare, we have no king but Caesar, they not only reject Jesus as God's son, but at the same time, they reject God the Father as their king. Just as we are told in John chapter 1.1, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. So we followed a long winding road in John. And it's finally come to the cross. Jesus in the middle, two others, one on each side of him. <coughs> I liked these words from Jean Vanier, the innocent one, the one who came to announce universal love and peace, the one who came to give us life, the fullness of life, is pushed down into a pit 
of hatred and rejection, is condemned to death on a cross. The one admired for his miracles becomes an object of ridicule. His life appears to be a horrible failure. Hate seems to have conquered love. But we will see that the conquered one, the one who apparently failed, opens up a new source, a source of new life, a new vision for humanity, a new road to peace and unity. Well, Pilate, he has a sign readied and attached to the cross, no doubt meant mockingly. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Well, the chief priests of the Jews, they protested to Pilate. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but, this, it's, but, but, that, this man, blah, 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 but that this man claims to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. What I have written, I have written. He said that to antagonize the, the chief priest. And going to the trouble of having a sign made and written in three different languages, and then stubbornly refusing to change it, is but again a case where Pilate has spoken truth more than he realized or intended. So this is happening again and again. Not only are there all of these prophecies that are coming and being fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but people speaking about this situation, enemies of Jesus speaking, speak truth more than they realize. Caiaphas had said earlier in John, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He was speaking truth more than he realized. Here is the man, the man you hate, the man condemned. Prophecy fulfilled. Here is the man whose name is the branch and from the branch or from his place he will branch out. The mob saying, let his blood be on us and on our children. That becomes the cry of the church and the people of God. And then the sign attached to the cross which Pilate had prepared. Jesus of Nazareth. The King of the Jews. The King they hated. The King they didn't want. The King they killed. The King they could not understand. The King they feared. But he becomes their king in truth. See, only God can take something like the fiasco of this crucifixion and then turn it into something that's beautiful. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. 
Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Again, I said these events are, are, there's prophecy going on all over the place. When David wrote the words of that psalm, he was speaking truer than he realized, I'm sure. He says these words, this is from that psalm. Dogs have surrounded me, a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far. Be not far off. O my strength, come quickly and help me. Now the king of the Jews, he becomes a naked king. And just as they stripped the clothes off Jesus and cast lots for him, so he is, Jesus is stripped of power, he's stripped of freedom, he's stripped of dignity. But even in the shame of the cross, in humility, Jesus reveals the truth of love in offering up himself. There's an important question here for us, I think. When by all appearances, God looks powerless. As Jesus looks powerless, naked, hanging on the cross. When in our lives, by all appearance, God looks powerless. Powerless to deal with whatever it is. My cancer, my pain problem. When God looks powerless to fix my marriage or my relationship with my children or my stressful work situation or my secret porn or alcohol addiction, fill in the blank. When God looks powerless, when His answers don't come quickly, will you give up the fight? Or will you continue to trust? When it looks hopeless, will you give up the fight or will you continue to trust? That's a question that comes to each one of us that you yourself have to answer before the Lord. And it's something you have to answer again and again and again. See, up to the very end now, Jesus shows unwavering trust in God the Father. Even at the cost of a flogging, a shaming, and a death by torture, the most horrific torture the empire, Roman Empire could come up with. In the end, in the end, after evil has had its way and had its day, it's not sin that holds Jesus onto the cross. It's not sin that keeps him there, but it's love. It's love for his Father that you can trust God no matter what, no matter how dark it is. It's love for you and I that holds Jesus to the cross. 
see what the world will throw at you to be your ending. What will come your way to destroy you. In the humble hands of Jesus, it can become a new beginning. Just as God takes the fiasco of the cross and turns it into something beautiful, God can take your shame, He can take your brokenness, He can take your mistakes, He can take your weakness. If you have the humility, He can take that and use that and turn it into something beautiful to create new life and new beginnings. New hope where there should be no hope. That is the power of your God. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Think about this. Mary and John, at this point, at this point, they're in darkness. They have no idea what God is going to do with this whole situation. All they can see is the darkness. All they feel is disillusionment and powerlessness and the loss of one they love dying in front of them on the cross. That's all they can see at this point. And while their eyes are fixed on Jesus, on His shame, while their eyes are fixed on the darkness, on the loss, on the defeat of the cross, from the cross, Jesus invites them to turn and recognize each other. To discover each other in the loss and in this dark night. Well, one last story and we'll be done. I know the study of history isn't everyone's cup of tea, so I try not to overdo it, but there are a few of you who really love it. So uh, this guy's name is Origin of Alexandria. Nice uh, photograph we have of him. He lived so long ago that the cameras weren't very good back then. He was born around 185 A.D. in Alexandria, only about 80 years after the death of the Apostle John, whose gospel we've been reading. Origen's father was a Christian named Leonides of Alexandria. He was a a respected professor of literature and a devout Christian who practiced his religion openly, without fear. He He shared with his students. He was vocal about his faith. Well, in the year 202, when Origen was not yet 17, the Roman emperor Septimius Severus ordered Roman citizens who openly practiced Christianity to be gathered up and executed. So Origen's father was arrested and thrown into prison. Well, Origen, he wanted to join his father and stand up for his faith by turning himself into the Romans. But his mother didn't like that idea. And so to keep him from going and turning himself in, his mother went through the house and hid all of his clothes. 
and he refused to leave the house naked. So it's interesting. I think there's a lesson for us too. When your kids are losing it, parents, hide car keys, hide phones, hide clothes maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But it's, it's an interesting strategy. Well, Origen, his father, was beheaded. And then the state, the Roman authorities, they confiscated his entire property, leaving the, the whole family broke and impoverished. Origen, he was the oldest of nine children, and as his father's heir, it became his responsibility to provide for this whole family. Well, he was a bright mind. He was thoughtful and a deep thinker, and he received the best of schooling that he can, could in Alexandria, and he found himself teaching and writing. He adopted an ascetic lifestyle where we would spend his whole day teaching, and then he would stay up late at night writing treatises and commentaries on the scriptures. He went barefoot around, and he owned only one cloak. He was a vegetarian and a teetotaler. And Origen was fascinated with the Gospel of John. That's why I include this story. He was fascinated with the Gospel of John. He was so fascinated. He was a prolific writer. But he, on John's Gospel alone, he wrote a 32-volume commentary. That's a lot of papyrus. We only have nine of those left that survive. But he claimed that what is going on in chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, it's a key to understanding everything that goes on in John's gospel. He said, nobody can really understand this gospel unless they too have reclined on the heart of Jesus and received Jesus' mother as the beloved disciple did. So there's, there's a lot going on there, uh, more than I can unpack. But I think he's correct. Because in the hidden music of John's gospel, it's all about John's hope when he writes it, my hope as I preach it. It's all about discovering God as real and alive and in love with you. It's all about discovering each other. Just as Jesus helps take the view of his mother and his beloved disciple off of himself and onto each other, he sets up this covenant relationship from the cross. He does that for us as well. Well, in the year 249, about 50 years later, a Cyprian plague broke out. So in the year 250, another emperor now, Decius, believing that the plague was caused by Christians who failed to recognize his divinity, issued a decree for Christians to be persecuted, and this time Origen did not escape. It says, Origen suffered bodily tortures and torments under the iron collar and in a dungeon. The governor of Caesarea gave very specific orders that Origen was not to be killed until he had publicly renounced his faith in Jesus Christ. <coughs> he endured two years of imprisonment and torture, but he obstinately refused to renounce his faith. 
A couple years later, the emperor Decius was assassinated and Origen was released from prison at that point. Nonetheless, Origen's health was broken by the physical tortures that were enacted on him, and he died less than a year later at the age of 69. And this is what he said is the key to the Gospel of John. First, reclining on the breast of Jesus, and then the situation with Jesus' mother. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And so, I mean, I'm sure there, I put my name on this, but there are people who have said this a lot better, who are a lot smarter than I am. But I have fun trying to think about these things and craft them into thoughts as well. And this is what I came up with. In the times of darkness, when it seems like God is powerless, when God in your life is hanging naked on a cross, and he's not doing anything, and he's not saying anything, he gives us the gift of each other so that we can help one another while we wait for the light of resurrection power to be revealed. That's what we can be for each other. Jesus from the cross, he calls to his people, he calls to his church. Take your eyes off the darkness and look at each other. Help each other. Be there for each other. Take each other into your lives and into your home. We will find strength in those relationships while we wait through the circumstances of our life for God's resurrection power to come and change everything. But I think it begins with the discovery of each other. One final, final comment, and I will be done. In the hidden music of John's gospel, it's not until Jesus helps people he loves create a new covenant of care with each other that in verse 28, Jesus says that he knew that all was now complete. It's in taking care of these people and their relationship from the cross that Jesus says he knew his work was now complete. So think about that. I don't know how these words strike you. I don't know how uh, you receive them. But as always, this... This is a church where if you have need, we want to be praying for you. Uh, whatever that is, life circumstances, encouragement, to put on the Lord in baptism. We are trying to grow and become a community of love more and more. And it is the will of our Savior, through the cross and from the cross, that he speaks to us to take care of each other and to love each other. Let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing together.